Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Rod Butler. Before we commence our sermon this morning, if I can just ask, can you bow your heads? Gracious Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for the Bible, for your word, that it is a guide and a lamp unto our feet. And Lord, as we are in very strange times, we want to thank you that we can trust the Bible. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we ask for the Holy Spirit to open our minds and give us understanding of your word. May your angels surround this church, this building, and be with each one of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I'm going to talk about um, an interesting journey. We've all had journeys which have gone um, not the way they were supposed to. At the conversion of Saul in the book of Acts, we see that God told Ananias that Saul was going to be his chosen vessel to bear his name to kings, Gentiles and the children of Israel. Paul didn't know at that stage that what this meant was that he would be stoned, he would be shipwrecked, he would be beaten, he'd be imprisoned, he'd go hungry, he'd go thirsty, and he'd have a perpetual thorn in his flesh. He didn't know any of that, but at the end of his life, we have in 2 Timothy 4.7, he says, I fought a good fight, I finished my course, and I've kept the faith. And the entire world was changed because of Paul. Paul was used to being led by the Holy Spirit. Paul had an active relationship with the Holy Spirit. I want you to open your Bibles now. We're just going to look at some texts here. Turn to the book of Acts in chapter 19. Paul had just been in Ephesus for two years and he was ready to make a move. And he says this in chapter 19 and verse 21. He says, After these things rendered, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Archaea to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Paul decided he'd been a long time in Ephesus, raising up the church. It was time to go back to Jerusalem. But then he wanted to go to Rome. We don't know why at that stage he wanted to go to Rome, but he had his heart set on going to Rome. We then go down to Acts 20, turn to, uh, go to chapter 20 just across the page. We're going to look at verses 22 and 23. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23. Now at this stage he's in Miletus. And uh, being in Miletus was only 75 kilometres south of Ephesus, so he hasn't gone very far, it's just gone by foot. But he said, Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city, saying, Bonds and afflictions abide me. So he wanted to go to Jerusalem, but the Holy Spirit was saying, Yeah, you're going, but bonds and afflictions will be waiting for you. But he still wanted to go. We then turn to, turn to uh, chapter 21. We're going to look at verse 4. He's now taken a sea voyage across to Tyre. 
He's about 202 kilometres uh, north of Jerusalem. And it says, And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul, through the Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. So once again, he wants to go to Jerusalem, and he's heading that way. He's almost there, but the Spirit's saying, don't go up. But Paul wants to go to Jerusalem. We then turn to Acts 21 and verses 10 and 11. So just go across to uh, verses 10 and 11. And he's now at Caesarea, which is only about 90 kilometres north. I mean, Caesarea to Jerusalem is like um, Hornsby's to Kurumbong. It's not far. And Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him and said, Trouble not yourselves for his... Sorry, I've just got the wrong 21. It's 10, 11. And we tarried there many days and came down from Judea, a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and found his, bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So, how would you feel if you were Paul? Everywhere is gone, the Holy Spirit's saying, don't go there, you're in trouble, there's going to be bonds waiting for you. But he goes. He goes to Jerusalem. We know the story. He goes into the temple. He gets attacked by a mob. He's rescued by the Roman tribune Lysias and he's taken up into the garrison. And that night, the Spirit speaks to him again. And we have in Acts 23, verse 11, just go to 23 and verse 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also in Rome. Now we've skipped the part of the story what's happened when he was arrested and the Jews went all crazy, tried to tear him apart. But we've got to the part now where the Spirit's saying, just like you've testified me to the Jews, you're going to testify to me in Rome. Now Paul at that stage probably thought, this is good. I'll be let go probably by the morning and I'll make my way there and it'll all be good and it'll be a nice pleasant trip across to Rome. That's probably what he thought. Now, we're going to look at this trip in more detail and see exactly what went wrong and what went right. Because one of the things I'm constantly amazed about, I'm constantly amazed about how we make plans with the best intentions to serve God and those plans (laughs) go awry. Things you wouldn't even imagine could go wrong, go wrong. But we have to stay faithful. And this voyage was an interesting voyage. So let's start. We're going to look at the, this bit of context, a bit of background. These are the major Medita- Mediterranean trade routes around AD 60, around the time Paul was on his way. Wanted to go to, uh, to Rome. To go to Rome from Jerusalem, you would get, go there by boat. Now this is the Roman Empire. We've had Caligula. He's, only 20, he, he's gone. Nero's there. He's 22 years old. And... Uh, we basically have Paul is now at Caesarea. He'd been held, he'd been held by uh, Festus for two years. Uh, sorry, Felix, now he's with Festus. And Paul's got no confidence in the justice he'll get meted out by the Hebrews, by the Jews, so he appeals to Caesar. And Festus says, to Caesar you've, you've appealed, to Caesar you'll go. So 
Paul is actually under house arrest and he's going to Rome as a prisoner. It's not the way he thought he'd be going. And this is the way he was going to be going. He was going to be going one of these major trade routes. Now, in the first century, the shipping set up in the Mediterranean was booming. If you look at this uh, Ostia there, Ostia was the seaport that fed Rome and that seaport was about 30 kilometres down from, on the, uh, the Tiber from Rome. It was the, the Rotterdam or the Shanghai of the world in the first century. The Roman capital was sucking in imports from all over the world, but mainly it was sucking in food. By this time, there was a million people living in Rome. It was very cosmopolitan. Those people needed food, and the Italian peninsula wasn't supplying grain, so it was getting grain from Carthage, Tunisia, and Egypt and other places, and all sorts of other stuff. Everything was going into Ostia to Rome. Julius Caesar, a hundred years earlier, one of the first things he did when he became emperor was he built a grain terminal in Ostia because of the need to feed the people. The Roman Caesars knew very well that you need to give the people circuses and bread. If they don't have circuses and bread, they'll revolt. Now, we sort of see some of that today. Give them the footy, give them the sport, give them the entertainment, and the nice food, everything's okay. So in this particular case, Ostia was booming. This is a typical um, layout of a ship. The ships that did the Mediterranean were actually quite advanced, and I'm going to go into those in a little bit of detail coming up. This was on a Pompeii um, tomb. As you know, Pompeii uh, is in this era. So this is very much typical of contemporary shipping. And the Phoenicians had mastered the art of shipping. They had been controlling on the Mediterranean for a thousand years at this stage. And if you know your history, the Phoenicians um, ended up going to Carthage. The Carthaginians were the ones that actually uh, were holding back Rome for a long, long time because they were controlling the, the sea and their navies were amazing. And it wasn't until the Romans learned how to actually build naval ships and run a navy and fight a battle with a navy and beat the Carthaginians that they actually got control of the Mediterranean. So that history was from Phoenicia. This is a replica of a boat. This is made by a guy called Philip Beale. He's an adventurer and an explorer. That's an actual replica of a, of a shipping boat, um, trading vessel, that was found off the coast of Marseille. And it's, it was built by a Syrian company that built it only with the materials that were available 2,000 years ago. Well, actually, more than that, 2,500 years ago. And... Uh, Philip Beale got that together and he wanted to sort of see how advanced were the, the Phoenicians and where could they go and for that matter how advanced was the whole shipping complex of the Mediterranean. This is another picture from the back. You'll sort of see the two major rudders. The stern rudder that you see on, on normal shipping that wasn't developed and implemented for another thousand years. The navies of the English in the 1300s were still using quarter rudders. So the technology of these ships was pretty good. And uh, 
Philip Beale built this boat. He wanted to see just how good it was, what it could do, to get an idea of what the Phoenicians were like. It was good on the open ocean, and it was good um, in calm seas as well, of course. Now, just as a way of explaining what, what he did, and this is all sort of going to tie back very shortly to, uh, to Paul's visit to Rome. One of the, uh, the trips he did, he wanted to circumnavigate Africa in that boat. Now, you'd say to yourself, well, that's, you know, when you look at history, you think, oh, the Phoenicians just hung around there. Well, he wanted to take it. Now, around there is some of the roughest water in the world, Cape Horn. So what he did, he set off in 2009, and that was the journey that he took. He was going to plan until Cape Town. He got blown off course. He went to 700 kilometres of America before they regained control of the winds and headed back. And 13 months later, 20,000 kilometres later, they arrived back in Beirut. Would you say that the, the Phoenician boats were pretty good? There's some pretty amazing water conditions, seas, winds in that trip. But it wasn't over. He wanted to prove something else. When I went to school, I was taught that in 14, the 1490s, Christopher Columbus was the first guy to sail to America. But you know what? They've been finding Phoenician artefacts all along the coast of Brazil. And a lot of historians are saying, well, maybe the Phoenicians made the trip across the Atlantic. Oh, it's impossible. That was 1,500 years earlier. So what Philip Beale did, he said, OK, let's try it out. So this is what he did. He left uh, Carthage, went to Spain, Morocco, down to the Canary Islands. He went across the Dominican Republic and then up to Florida. Easy. 10,000 k's, four months in that little boat. No problems. So what would you say is the capability of Phoenician ships? Because this was the technology of all the ships that the Romans were copying that the Romans had in the Mediterranean at this time when Paul was going from Caesarea across to Rome. So the historic voyages of the, the Phoenicia really proved a lot of points. Now back then, the typical route with, with good, good winds was from Caesarea, they would sail under Crete. They could stop there if they felt they needed to, but otherwise they'd keep going straight through up to Ostia. That was the express lane, if they could go that way. But typically, they would have to go a different route. They would hug the coastline and take a bit more time. And you've got to remember too that back then the shipping season was seven months from April through to the end of October because beyond those months, for those who have lived in the Northern Hemisphere, you tend to get very definite seasons. You can be thinking, oh, this summer's going to go on forever. Suddenly you get to the next month and it feels like it's winter again. So the, the same conditions apply to shipping. The sailors knew that if you went outside those months, you could be in trouble with the ships. So let's, uh, let's look at this journey he took. Okay, go to your Bibles again and go to chapter 27. Chapter 27, verse 1. 
And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. And entering into a ship of Adramatium, we launched many to sail to the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. Now, Paul was with, was with two other people. Under the Roman law, if you are a prisoner but you're a Roman citizen and you are under arrest appealing to Caesar, you're allowed to take two other people with you. You're allowed to take a servant and you're allowed to take a, phoenici- a, a physician. Now, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. What was Luke? He was a doctor. So Luke's telling the story. He went with him. And the other person was Aristarchus, who was the servant. So Paul went with two other people. And they stopped at Sidon. And because Paul had already ingratiated himself with this Roman centurion Julius, that he was an honourable person, he was allowed to leave the ship and go on land and catch up with the disciples and uh, meet up with friends. Normally they would cut across there in good weather, but this was late in the season. It says in the record this was late in the season, so therefore they had to take the safety first. And they took, they hugged the coastline between Cyprus and uh, the northern part of Lebanon to a place called Myra. Now just go to chapter 27 and verse 5. Chapter 27 Verse 5, and when we had sailed over the Sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. It says there in verse 6, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. Now this is where the story gets interesting. So far they've been on a vessel going back to Adramatium, which is, if you imagine, I've got on the map, but northern Turkey, up near the Caspian. That's where that ship was going. But they stop at Myra because they've got to change buses and go to Rome. This is late in the season. And what's available to go on is a grain ship, an Alexandrian grain ship. And, you know, of maritime historians, Alexandrian grain ships are really, really interesting because they were massive, absolutely massive. And what they're finding out about these ships really helps to unlock this story. Can you imagine a ship, a sailing boat, which would be carrying grain, which is cargo which weighs a lot, and also 276 people? How big would that boat be? Well, let's look. There's a Greek writer called Lucian. He writes in one of his histories of the Isis. Now, this was a little bit later, but it would be indicative of what they sailed on. This is 54.8 metres. Its depth of hold, that's how much, how much height there was for the cargo, was 13.7 metres, 0.4 metres. I think in feet still, showing my age, that's 44 feet. That's a big hold. They've calculated these ships could hold 1,000 tonnes of grain and passengers and crew. So this is a big deal. And uh, with good sailing, they could do quite a good speed. Now, you've just seen what a Phoenician ship can do. It can go around Africa, go across the Atlantic. A little bit smaller, half the size of this, but these ships were very capable. The only problem they had was their size and the cargoes they had was they were slow. They were the super tankers of the Mediterranean of the day 
And these went in usually in fleets, but this is the late, late part of the season. And being the late part of the season, this one had been blown off course, but it was heading back to Rome, and they were going to, Alexand they were going to, uh, to Rome with Alexandrian wheat. Just a comment on wheat, by the way. Do you know that when Alexander the Great was feeding his armies as I was going across Asia, he arranged to get only Alexandrian or Egyptian wheat for his troops because of the nutritional content. And because of the way every year the Nile flooded, they had consistent crops and they had consistent harvest times. The harvest had to be done by the end of June because the floods came through, which meant these, these tankers for the grain were waiting from June onwards. And boy, then they started just shipping across to, uh, to Rome. By the way, the Romans have calculated we're eating over 300,000 tonnes of just wheat every year. 80% of their diet was bread. So, you know, you think of the Roman Caesars, we've got to give them bread and circuses. Uh, this was a really important part. And the, the grain trade was, was uh, hired out to private enterprise. So the private guys built these ships, but they had to then take the risk of the cargo getting there. Now you think about it too. You put a whole lot of grain, say a thousand tonnes in a ship. What happens when you put grain in water? It expands. One of the problems they had, they had to seal these ships to the point where no moisture because the grain would start to sprout, no water because if it did expand, they could split the hulls. So the technology in these ships, even today, they're still trying to figure out how they do that. But they did it. And they did it on a massive scale. So just to give you an idea of what's a comparable ship to these ones, you might have already seen this ship. That's the USS Constitution. You look at the stats. Almost the same length. Roughly the same width. And it holds 450 marines and crew. But it doesn't hold any cargo, apart from you know, guns and armaments. That gives you an idea of how big these ships were. They were very, very capable. And it says here in the book of Acts that they uh, picked up an, a ship of Alexandria sailing to Italy. So the, the person who owned this ship, it was late in the season, he probably had a very good reason to get this cargo to Italy because being late in the season, it would be one of the last ships to get there. Then there was winter. He was probably getting a good bonus for this cargo. So it was in his commercial interest not to delay at all, just go there. Now here's another interesting quote. This is Josephus. Now look at the date here. This, this quote came when he was 26 years old, the life of Flavius Josephus, page 3. And he says, Accordingly I came to Rome, though it was through a great number of hazards by sea. This is roughly the same time Paul's travelling. For as our ship was drowned in the Adriatic Sea, we that were in it being about 600. His ship had 600 people on it, and maybe it had that cargo as well. Swam for our lives all the night, when upon the first appearance of the day and upon our sight of a ship of Cyrene, I and some others, eight in all, by God's providence, prevented the rest and were taken up into another ship. Well, it appears to me that maybe 520 died, but he didn't. But that quote just gives you an idea. This is big league shipping and you don't sort of pick that up when you just go through this story but it's important because what happens coming up so here we are he's at Myra they jump on this big Alexandrian grain ship they want to go west 
going west with that wind is the worst possible wind to go because if you know about sailing, you're going into a tacking situation and if you've got a tack, it's very, very slow. So they headed off and it says <clears throat> the winds were contrary and they got Canidas just above roads there and because it was so bad, they decided they wanted to go south and we're going to pick up where they went. They wanted to go across there to Greece and then across to Rome, but they had to go south because the wind was so bad and they headed down to Crete. Went past Cape Salome and there they were at the Fair Havens. Now the story gets interesting because at the Fair Havens, it was late in the season. The story says that because it was so late, they decided they'd better winter. It means they had to stay there over the winter. Now they're going to, they're going to stay there three or four months because they're risking the crew, they're risking the ship going down if there's a storm or whatever. And there's an interesting conversation here. The conversation is that the captain and the centurion have a discussion. Shall we go? I want to just go around to another part. I want to just go across to Phoenice because it's a much better harbour and if we're going to stay here three months, well, it's much better, better facilities. Don't want to stay here. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Take my word for it. Don't stay here because the ship will be in danger of sinking. Now, Paul had been around boats a long time. You think about this. How many, how many boat trips would you have to have had to have been shipwrecked three times? There's no record in the Bible of any of his trips being shipwrecked. When you go through his missionary journeys, you can count 15 sea voyages. But none of those he was shipwrecked. He was shipwrecked three times. Paul was a platinum frequent sailor. And he knew a thing or two about boats. For those who used to fly a lot, ever walked out on a plane to see if there's any oil leaks coming out of any of the screws? Paul would have gone on the boat. He'd very quickly make a mental note of what condition the boat was in. And a very good friend of mine who's a, who's a uh, professional um, sports sailor, he's told me, you, you very quickly get to know what a boat is like when you hear it strain, all the creaks and groans. So Paul knew there was a problem with this boat. But they said, no, the wind's going good, so let's go. Well, as soon as they left to go to Phoenice, which is only 60 k's, the weather got really bad. Just if you read verse 14, 27 verse 14, it says, And when the ship was caught up, we could not bear the... Oh, sorry, verse 14. But not long after, there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocladon. And when our ship was caught and could not bear up the wind, we let her drive. So basically, it just got caught and was blown south. Verses 14 to 16 talk about how, what did they do? This ship's, this massive grain tank is now out of control in the wind and Paul already knew that it wasn't seaworthy in rough seas and it's now in the worst possible storm. By the way, the Eurocladon is equivalent to a Category 2 cyclone and I've got a, one coming up showing that. So what they did, they had to set their sails um, and run with the wind and they got to cloud it. Then they had to put these things on the boat it says in verse, um, verse 17, which when they had taken up, they used helps, undergirding the ship, and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, strike sail, and so were driven. When you read that in the King James, you think, what's that talking about? 
Well, what it's talking about is this ship was creaking and groaning so much with all this cargo. So if you imagine 276 people, maybe 900 tonnes of cargo, plus all the other stuff that goes with it, and it's groaning and creaking, and Paul's saying this is not good. They had to get cables, and they wrapped the cables around the hull, and they tensioned them. And it's literally like putting a, uh, one of those things around your knee when your knee's feeling a bit crook. It holds your knee together. These things, it's called frapping. And they had to frap this massive boat with cables to stop the hull from coming apart. And they're now in the open ocean in a massive storm. In their mind, they'd be thinking, any minute now, the ship's going to fall apart and we're going to die. And it says there, by the way, they were headed to, lest they were blown to the quicksands. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you in a sec. But the first thing we've got to remember is, did Paul plan to go to Rome in a storm? Do we plan to have troubles? No. But they do happen. And they're probably going to happen more as we get closer to the end. And when they happen, we have to trust God. Now we'll see in the story, Paul's faith becomes pivotal to the story and what happens. And we have to have that pivotal story because when we have faith, when things are going wrong, people see how we react. They see our stability and it's infectious. They get confidence in God. Wow, God can do that for that person. He can do it for me. So we've got to trust God when storms disrupt our plans. Now you'll see here, the quicksands, that wind, your Auckland is going to blow this way. That's called the Surtees of Libya. They're sandbars all along there. If you get a Google Earth shot, you sometimes can see those sandbars. That was a graveyard for ships. Once they got in there, they'd literally get stranded on a sandbar in the middle of the sea and everyone would die. And these sailors knew that and they wanted to do everything they could not to go there. So what did they do? They had to rig the ship in what they call hove two, which means you've got to have the nose pointing almost to the wind, you have only the tiniest little sail up, and you have the rudder pointing into the wind. So any forward motion is equal to the wind going that way, and you just get virtually kept stationary, but you blow, you get caught with the, uh, the current drift. And they were hove to, and they started to drift and they drifted across. And the third day, it didn't stop. This was a massive storm. They call these storms Medicanes, Mediterranean hurricanes. And they're not infrequent. And back then, there wasn't navigation gear. Most of these Phoenician sailors sailed by the stars. So when you've got a Medicane and you can't see the stars, you can't navigate. They're in a hove-to rigging position, so they're just drifting in the ocean, being battered, not knowing where they are, and they've just got to hope at any moment the ship doesn't break apart and they all die. So it's actually a pretty hopeless situation to be in. They keep going, they keep drifting. Now it says there in Acts, 20, Acts 27 verses 23 and 24, just turn to that. Paul says to them, this is on the 14th night, Paul says to them, For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, 
Thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. This is a boat now for... Has anyone here been on a boat in a storm? I have. A sailing boat is terrifying. It is really scary. And uh, if you don't know how to sail, like I didn't, I was really scared. Because the boat's on an angle like that. It was a big sailing boat. The captain's as cool as a cucumber, but you don't know what's going to happen. They were like this for two weeks. Think any moment, if water gets in the hold and the grain starts to swell, we'll just split open. We're all going to die. But the angel appears to Paul and says, Paul, because of your faith, no one's going to lose their life. And by the way, that area there, that's the area which is covered by the Malta Search and Rescue Centre. And the Malta Search and Rescue Centre have software which can simulate conditions and predict a drift. The Malta Search and Rescue, which is part of the military, have actually simulated this story in their software. They've got Medicaid conditions from the direction, they know the currents of the Mediterranean. They worked out from where that boat want, went, they worked out from the story and their software that that boat would end up, guess where? In Malta, exactly where it did. How accurate is the Bible? It's amazing. There's a picture of the Medicaid from a couple of years ago that lasted more than a week. And if you look at that picture, you'll see there's Crete where they left. And there's a little pipsqueak dot there, Malta, where they ended up. So these storms do occur even today. One of the things they had to do, they had to throw their tackling overboard. They had to throw anything on the, on the ship overboard that was bearing the, the weight. If you're on a ship and you're in a storm and it's very low on the water, you run the risk the water will come over. So you've got to lighten the ship so it's more buoyant. So it says in the story they threw all their tackling over. And the word in the, in the Greek means a lot of the rigging, but also means any furniture that could be thrown overboard was thrown overboard. Any, anything which could be picked up was thrown overboard. So imagine people's luggage was going overboard, the tackling, anything they could throw overboard is being thrown overboard. And there's a very powerful lesson there for us too regarding discarding what we have in storms. How many people have been in a crisis and suddenly figured out that that problem at work doesn't mean much anymore? You suddenly get a, re, a new perspective of what's important in life. That's one of the reasons we go through storms, why God allows storms through us, because we can recalibrate what's important. I just want to read you a, a quote here from Ellen White. This is from Steps to Christ. So most of you will know this quote. You may be perplexed in business. Your prospects may grow darker and darker and you may be threatened with loss. But do not become discouraged. Cast your care upon God and remain calm and cheerful. Pray for wisdom to manage your affairs with discretion and thus prevent loss and disaster. Do all you can on your part to bring about favourable results. Jesus has promised his aid but not apart from our effort. So when we have crises occur, and they occur in our lives, they certainly occur in mine, that's an opportunity for us. 
What don't I need in my life that's just weighing me down? Get rid of it. Clean house. Focus on God. Pray. Another lesson from this story. Paul was praying, praying so much that the angel came and spoke to Paul, as we saw. And the other thing, think back to Noah. Noah was building an ark. How was Noah's faith rewarded? His family was, was, went into the ark as well. We've got to pray for our families. But not just our families as in our biological families. What about our church family? Are you praying for your church family members? You know, your, you know members around you in the church are having struggles and difficulties? Are you praying for them? I heard, heard my brother here talk about prayer meeting. It's a great place to find out about how we can help, who we can pray for. So pray for those around you. Yes, pray for your brothers, sisters, children, but pray for your church members. We're the people that are going to be taking the three angels' message. We've got to pray for each other. Paul did, and the angel rewarded Paul by saying, no one's going to lose their life. So, here's Malta. Now, I like doing comparisons. That's the main island of Malta. Believe it or not, that island is almost exactly the same square kilometrage as North Stradbroke Island. Who's been to North Stradbroke? Well, you've been there, you've been to Malta. Only there's 400,000 people on that island, not that many on Stradbroke. That sort of gives you an idea how big Malta is. And they were drifting across. This is where the story is interesting because if you go to Malta today, the traditional site is there. That's called St Paul's Bay. It's St Paul's Island. And that's where all the tourist parts are. It's where a church is. If you went there, the Roman Catholics have a big church there to celebrate this, this journey. So the history and the tradition is all there. But where do they actually land? There's been a lot of research and archaeology done in this. It's quite interesting because, again, it's, it bears out the historical accuracy of the Bible in this story. There are only, it, says in the, it says in the story, by the way, just look at verse 28, chapter 27, verse 28. It says and sounded and found it 20 fathoms, and when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found it 15 fathoms. So when this boat was coming to land, they could hear, the, they could hear something going on, they could hear some breakers, so they started to sound. They threw a line over there with these knots on it to work out how deep is the water. 20 fathoms is 120 feet. So then a bit later, it was 90 feet. Well, when you look at Malta today, you can rule out all the west coast. It's all too deep. When you look at the north part, there's only a few locations where there's 20 fathoms, then 15 fathoms. There's Malula Bay, Salina Bay, which is the traditional location, which is St Paul's. Uh, there's St George's Bay, Baluda Bay, and St Thomas's Bay. Let's look at St Thomas's Bay, because it's the most line of sight if you're being drifting west. This is where the archaeologists have looked at where could this uh, boat have ended up. Well, there's St Thomas's Bay. 
It says in the record here, the sailors didn't recognise the port. Now, again, this is first century Mediterranean. Shipping was everywhere. Malta was a stopping point for Carthage and Sicily. So the north part of the island was heavily um, with infrastructure for boating. These sailors didn't recognise where they were. There was no lights, nothing. So it's unlikely they were in the traditional location. They were in a part where there was no habitation. It also says they saw a beach where they could put the, put the boat. And it says they let the ship go but it hit a, hit a place where two seas meet. There's only one place on Malta where two seas meet and it's Munchar Reef. And Munchar Reef in a big storm, you literally have waves breaking in opposite directions. It's an incredible thing to see. And the reef goes out quite a long way. They hit that reef because the way the waves break, very quickly broke up the ship. The location of St uh, Thomas's Bay favours the 14-day drift, and it was corroborated by the Maltese Search and Rescue Centre as well. And the offshore depth is 20, then 15 fathoms. Now here's the crucial one. In the 1960s, firstly, Malta's been inhabited for thousands of years. Several, uh, it goes back to the Phoenicians. But the Phoenicians, yes, they would catch fish and they'd go underwater. It wasn't until the 1960s when Jacques Cousteau bought out, he commercialised his aqualung that the locals could go really deep. And they started to go really deep. And they found off St Thomas's Bay four anchors. And the record in Acts 27 says they dropped four anchors. These big Alexandrian grain ships had, some of them had 15 anchors. They usually had two in the front, sorry, four in the front, four in the back, and maybe some in the side quarters and some in the back quarters. They found four anchors, exactly what it says here, they dropped four anchors. And one of those anchors they found was actually broken in two. Now when I say anchor, that part of the anchor's wood, that's long gone. All that's left is that piece there. That piece is melted lead. That's hugely heavy, hence it's an anchor. Well, one of those lead sections was literally torn in two bits. An enormous amount of force would be required to do that. They found three good anchors, the wood was gone, but they found one torn one. And evidence of this story being true. They had to listen and watch for signs. What does that mean to us today? Are we listening and watching for signs? There was a storm raging around them. They were in a storm, but they could hear breakers. Ah, to an experienced sailor, breaker means trouble. Breaker means a reef. Our boat, this could be bad news. So even though the storm's going, they listened. What about us today? We've got a lot of strange stuff happening in our world today. Are we listening? Are we seeing the bits that are really important that point to Christ coming back? Because he is coming back. I'm sure a lot of you folk are keeping in touch with the current events in America and other places, the whole coronavirus thing, the issue regarding vaccination, linkage to Sunday law, the climate, you know, all the sort of things raging. In all that, we can see signs that we're heading for some momentous event, and that's Christ coming back. 
we're to listen and watch and we're going to be ready. Now they were ready. The story talks about they were ready. But some of the sailors in the story tried to leave the ship. And Paul said if they leave the ship, no one will be saved. So they cut the ropes and the boat went off. There's a message there for us today too. Is this the time for us to get um, not forgive another church member because we're holding a grudge and we want to not come to church or have something holding us back? Now's the time to connect, to stay with the ship, to be part of the ship. We don't want to leave the ship. We've got to stay with it. We've got to support our brothers and sisters at this time more than ever. The story has a great message there for us. Stay with the ship. Stay with our church. Where are you going to go anyway? You think of what the disciples said. Jesus had just worked a very hard day. He spoke about the bread and the wine and they said, oh, this is all very hard. And all the disciples started to leave. And Jesus said, are you going to leave too? And they said, where, Peter said, where do we go? You have the truth. So we stay with the ship because where are you going to go? Our church has the truth. We're not perfect people, but our message is the truth. That's where we stay and we give that truth to others because they need to hear it. So Paul eventually made it. He made his, he made his trip to land. He wanted to go that way. When you go through all the various steps of that story, the journey which he went took about six months. From Caesarea to Ostia was about six months. And that time, if you include the two years in house arrest, two and a half years. So he's going to Rome, his journey going to Rome, which he thought was going to be a great trip as a free citizen. It took him two and a half years. Two years as a prisoner, nearly shipwrecked again. But it was a voyage of opportunity. Why is that? Well, Paul got to witness to a lot of influential people. That storm would have occurred regardless. That ship was going to Rome regardless. Had Paul, Aristarchus and Luke not been on it, that ship would have sunk and 273 people would have died. But Paul was on that ship and Paul's faith and prayers saved everybody. It also says in the story that when they wanted to swim to land, when the ship broke up, the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners. In Roman times, if you were given a prisoner to take somewhere, if that prisoner escaped, do you know what the penalty was? It was your life. That's why I know in Paul and Silas were in the prison at midnight singing and the door sprung open by the angel, the earthquake. As soon as the jailer saw that he thought the prisoners had escaped, went to kill himself because he knew if any of those prisoners escaped, Paul said, no, no, stop, we're all here. Well, those soldiers were going to kill the prisoners because they thought they'd swim in the water and escape. It says in Acts 28, the next chapter, that when Paul got to Malta, he healed Publius's relative. That's the leader of the island. He then stayed there three months, healing many people. A great work was done, and believers were raised up in Malta. Then he got to Rome, and he preaches for two years. So going through our lesson from this story, trust God when storms disrupt your plans. I can't stress that enough. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are going to have lots of storms coming up. 
We're going to have separation. We're going to have potentially employment issues. There's going to be a whole lot of things which are going to challenge us. And through it all, we're going to trust God. We're going to have to dig really deep and trust God. Do I really trust that promise in the Bible or don't I? It's what it comes down to. We're going to start looking at ourselves. What are we doing right now in our lives that are just a waste? We'll get rid of it. Focus on God. Recalibrate your thoughts. Recalibrate your focus to be on God, particularly this time. Prayer. I can't say enough about prayer. Prayer is amazing. Come to prayer meeting. Unite with prayer with, your, with fellow believers. There's power in united prayer. Come to prayer meeting. Pray for your neighbours. Pray for your work colleagues. Pray for that opportunity to speak a word in season. You'll be amazed how God will answer your prayer and put people in your path you won't even dream about once you start praying that. Listen and watch for signs. Christ is coming back really soon. There's signs all around us. What are we going to do about it? We're going to listen and watch and then act. Get our lives ready. And we're going to stay with the ship. And all White says that the church appears as though it's about to fall, but it doesn't. We've got to stay with the ship. We've got to support each other, pray for each other. Because we're the people that hopefully are going to light up the world with that fourth angel's message. So I would encourage you this afternoon, get in a nice comfy chair, pick up your Bible, read chapter 27 and 28, chapters 27 and 28 of Acts, and go through the, that journey. It's an amazing journey when you see the message is there for us today, right now. And I just make an appeal to everyone. Now is the time to get serious about God because I believe we are in a, a lull time before a big storm and we have to prepare ourselves. We've got to know our Bibles because when that storm hits, what are you going to hang on to? You're going to hang on to either the written word, you might have a Bible with you or you may not. You're going to hang on to what that text says, what that promise says and do I believe it? Do I really, truly believe it? Am I prepared to lose everything for it? That's what's coming. And the good part about it, we've got nothing to fear because Christ is with us. And he says, if he be with us, who can be against us? So I encourage you all, go back through the book of Acts and read that story. You'll be blessed. Gracious Father, we do, Lord, thank you for the Bible. We thank you, Lord, for the stories the actual historical accounts that we can rely on that are so packed with meaning for us today. Lord, we thank you for the word of God, which is a lamp unto our feet. Lord, it's our prayer this morning that as we read, the Holy Spirit will impress upon us the importance of memorising the promises so that when the storms hit, Lord, we can hang on to those promises. And Lord, we pray this morning for our family members and our friends and neighbours that don't know you. Please, we pray that you'll give us that opportunity to speak a word in season to them. This is our prayer this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
This message was made available by the Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Dundas Seventh-day Adventist Church. Welcome to God's Favourite Shepherds, a collection of 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters, with many of the stories ending with a short quiz. Listen now to the author of God's Favourite Shepherds, Bill Ackland. This story I would like to share with you is called A Miracle in Troas, A New Life During a Sermon. The Troas I know was built by one of Alexander's generals, Antigonus. It was not far from the site of the ancient city of Troy and was named Antigonia. Following his death, the city's name was changed to Alexandria by one of his antagonists, Lysimachus, the king of Thrace. To avoid being confused with the great city of the same name in Egypt, our city was known as Alexandria Troas an important seaport. Invariably, ports were key cities of countries that had a coastline, for it was through these ports that wealth flowed. Augustus Caesar acquired the city as a colony of Rome. Over the years, magnificent structures of all kinds were erected. We enjoyed these beautiful buildings, even though some were devoted to Roman gods. On the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey, He visited Troas for the first time. It was here that God gave him a vision of a man in Macedonia, pleading with him to visit them and explain the gospel of Christ to them. My story is not about Paul's visit to that northern country, but about what happened when he visited Troas on his third missionary journey. He remained with us for a whole week. On the first day of the week, he celebrated the Lord's Supper with us, preaching powerfully until late into the night. I always enjoyed Paul's sermons. The upper room where we met was full of Paul's converts and others who had come to hear him. I decided to ensure that I could see the preacher by sitting on a window ledge. This was a good position while I remained awake. As the hours went by, I could not help nodding off. I remember nothing of what happened next, so I will let a friend of mine continue my story. I had noticed my friend had a good seat to see Paul from the window ledge. As midnight approached, Paul suddenly stopped. Commotion erupted at the side of the room. My friend had apparently gone to sleep and had fallen down to the ground, all of three stories below. Some of the men and I rushed down the stairs to find that our good friend had been killed by the fall as he fell onto the hard stone paving. Paul soon followed us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he pressed his body against the dead young man, got up and said, There is still life in our young friend. With that, our friend, who we thought was dead, sprang up on his feet 
and followed us up to the room where Paul continued to preach until daylight. We did not mind listening to such a long sermon on two counts. First, we had come to know Paul as truly one of God's men. He fearlessly proclaimed the gospel wherever he went. It was he who had told us about our Saviour some years before. And second, we were present when God performed the miracle of giving life to our dear friend through the ministry of Paul. You can be sure no one went to sleep until Paul concluded his sermon as the sun cast the new day's light across the sky. You may not be surprised to learn that my friend's name means fortunate. His name is Eutychus. You can also be sure he did not sit again on a window ledge to listen to a preacher. You've been listening to God's Favoured Shepherds, a book with 39 short stories rounding out the lives of mainly lesser-known Bible characters. If you have any comments or questions, or to obtain a copy of this book, give us a call within Australia on 02-4973-3456 or send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. We'd love to hear from you. In the parable of the tenants, the tenants took the owner's son, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That is exactly what happened to Jesus. But not before he asked them, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, Matthew 21, 40 and 41. This scenario of the second coming is portrayed again, not only by those who pronounce sentence upon themselves as they had just done before Jesus was crucified, but by John in the book of Revelation. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Revelation 1 verse 7. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.